Hi guys, welcome back. We're together here and we're in the second section of looking at Genesis chapter 33. And I hope today is going to give us all some practical tips, some practical ideas on how we might seek and find reconciliation in our lives. You know, address those issues of anyone that we're in conflict with because this re-coming together in the story of Jacob and Esau, I believe, can help us greatly that in that regard. But that's where we are today. So welcome, welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Now, the object of this podcast series is to, Lord willing, work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And what I'd like to say, if you're joining us for the first time, there's always an opportunity to go back and begin this entire journey and come with us together on it over the next, well, quite a few years, I would imagine. Now, no matter where you're receiving the audio version of this podcast from, doesn't matter what platform, you'll find within the episode notes the link there whereby, if you want, you can get a transcript of everything that is said. Now, these teachings, these Bible studies, these podcasts is put out there in the public domain. The actual podcast itself and the, the notes, the episode notes, the transcript are yours to do with as you want to reconstitute, to use in your own personal study or to create your own resources in any way you want. Do it with my blessing. A credit for the podcast is always appreciated, but it's not. It's not a requirement. You'll also find within the episode notes links to other ways you can contact and get involved with the ministry. If you happen to be watching on Facebook or YouTube, the video version, then there's usually a link through to the audio version where you'll find all the links to those resources there. But anyway, that's it by way of introduction today. So what we'll do now is we'll uh, we'll go in and we'll pick up in part two of the main text and I'll see you back here at the end. Bye-bye for now. Hi again, welcome back. So here we are again in uh, this two-session version of going through and looking through Genesis chapter 33 and the story of Jacob and Esau's coming back together and the reconciliation that happens there. So it's just, I think, worth quickly recapping what I've said so far. The story so far of chapter 33 is these two brothers have been apart for 20 years, but here they meet up and they reconcile and they settle down together and agree to go to slightly different parts of the same land. Now it's remarkable that these guys have come back together in this way and been able to reconcile because when they parted 20 years earlier they literally wanted to kill one another but now they've found a way by which they are able and desire to live in peace. So this is a straightforward story of Jacob and Esau and within this chapter, its main purpose is to be a witness to the reconciliation and how they peacefully uh, set up home in the land together. And that sums up the sort of the narrative and the purpose of chapter 33. What I'd like to do today is we've been through the text verse by verse, but what I'd like to do is see what we can learn from it and particularly what we can learn about reconciliation in the story of this chapter. 
So as I suggested, the chapter was very much telling us about a one particular situation where reconciliation was was sought and found. So I suppose the question I think we need to ask ourselves is, is there anybody that we need to be reconciled with? Do you need to reconcile with someone in your life? Is there someone in your life that you are in conflict with or you have been in conflict with for a great many years? So what can we learn from this passage? Well, I believe we can actually learn a lot that is really helpful when it comes to thinking about this matter. And I would like to make some observations about reconciliations. And I have four main points to make. Four observations on how reconciliation is and can be played out between people who find themselves in a state of conflict or ill will. So observation number one, and I'd like to say the thing that's really worth noticing about this passage is how they don't say anything about the past. They don't get into this discussions on the detail of what's gone on in the past. Now, I've been involved in cases where I've seen people who've been in conflict with each other and they wanted to reconcile with each other, even got to the point where they came together to attempt to do that. But in a great many of those cases, nearly always one and sometimes both of those participants wanted to go over the details of the past, to hash them out over and over again, in a way I think really to try and convince the other person that they were wrong, or actually sometimes even convince me that they were in the right. Now, one person and sometimes both persons are often absolutely sure that it is the other person that is in the wrong. So much so that I think there are times when the two people who have fallen out actually find they're unable to reconcile for that very reason because they can't even get off the starting blocks because they can't agree whose fault it was. They can't agree on a shared narrative of the past and consequently they're unable to deal with each other amicably in the future. So the observation I think that's worth making here And I want to be careful about how I word it, but I think that this shows that there are sometimes cases when the past does not need to be specifically addressed. Now, that's that's an important point to make. I think this passage teaches us. It doesn't teach us that that should always be the case, but it does, I believe, teach us that it doesn't have to be done this way every time. In other words, you don't need to dig into the past every time in order to try and agree a way forward. Now, of course, I think that depends on the situation, the seriousnesses of any perceived offences taking place and the personalities of the individuals involved. But I believe this story definitely tells us that recognition does not necessarily always have to involve dragging up the past in every case, because clearly that's not what happened in this case. And I think it can be helpful and instructive to know that, that there can be a way forward for you and for other people without having to deal with it in such a confrontational way. Meaning simply that resolving all the details and agreeing on a shared narrative of the past is not always necessary. It is entirely possible for two people who are in conflict with each other to come to an agreement An agreement when they say we don't really agree or see the details in the same way as how we got to where we are today, 
but we can still forgive each other and move forward. Maybe even be well disposed to each other from now on. Maybe even be in friendship with one another. And who knows, in the fullness of time, those details of the past may be able to be come back and be dealt with in an easier way. So observation number one, resolving all the details of the facts of a situation is not always necessary when seeking reconciliation. An old school Bible teacher I read in an old commentary when I was looking at this said this, it is possible to reach a perfectly satisfactory harmony between two people whilst at the same time failing to agree on the basis of how that harmony was achieved. Right? So sometimes people are able just to make a decision to let go of the past and move on. To let bygones be bygones, as that old expression says. Now, of course, that depends on the seriousness of the situation. But I also think it depends very much on the individuals involved, or probably a better way of saying it is the personality of the individuals involved. So what I think it's telling us is there isn't an absolute rule laid down in Scripture that you always have to deal with the details of the past or agree with what has happened in the past. So don't let different view of the past block you from seeking reconciliation with someone that you should be reconciled with. Now, I just want to throw that observation out there that in this case... Clearly, they didn't go back into the past and discuss the detail of any disagreement, but they still found a way to reconcile and live harmoniously thereafter, nonetheless. So that's observation number one about dealing with conflict. The second observation I'd like to make is, and I mentioned this earlier, and I mentioned it as we went through the text, in fact, several times, is that for there to be reconciliation between two parties, someone has to initiate, someone has to make the first move. And perhaps it should be, as in this case, the guilty one who initiate, who is the initiator in a sense of the problem is seen to be the one who moves first. Jacob, as we know, quite a few chapters back, 20 years back in fact, he was the one who cheated Esau. And in this story, he is seen to be the one who makes the first move. Now, I don't believe it always should have to be that way. And as a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there are passages that talk about reconciliation. And when Jesus is speaking on it, if we look in Matthew's Gospel, in one of these situations in Matthew chapter 5, and then there's another situation in Matthew chapter 18. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is seen to say, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them to the other cheek also. So he's clearly pointing to a scenario where having received the offence, Jesus says the offended one is the one who is to immediately initiate forgiveness. Yet in Matthew 18, we see the situation where Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who has sinned against me? Up to seven times, Jesus answered. And I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times. So it seems to me in Matthew, there's a suggestion, at least, that Jesus is saying that even if you're the guilty person, that you may need to go first because that person is coming up and asking for their forgiveness and you are then compelled to forgive them. In Matthew 18, the guilty person initiates 
and you reconcile. And in Matthew chapter 5, it is the other person who is guilty and yet you still need to go first. So what this tells me is that, you know what, there isn't any fast, hard and fast rule about this, except obviously someone has got to make the first move. But here's the rubber. Here's the stinger, friends. What this also tells me is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and the other person is not, then we are the ones who should always, always be prepared to make the first move. Observation number three, and this is very important. Humility is always needed. This whole situation, this whole process has to be wrapped up in humility. Jacob is seen to approach Esau here with an extremely humble attitude. In fact, he calls him Lord and he refers to himself as his servant. I pointed that out several times as we went through the passage. It happens many times in that chapter. And the fact that it happens over and over again is a narrative technique used to reflect the fact that Jacob was coming with an extremely humble attitude. So let's just pause and talk about humility and what it looks like in these situations for a minute. Humility will always begin with acknowledging the Lord and our position, our moral position as we stand before him, our position as sinners as we stand before a holy God. Throughout Jacob's first meeting with Esau, he is seen to acknowledge first the Lord's blessing in his life, pointing out the blessings he's received and all that God has done in multiplying his flocks, herds and family in his life. And I pointed this out as we went through the passage, didn't it? And after the first meeting, Jacob was seen to have praised the Lord. And the passage ends, the entire chapter ends with him acknowledging the Lord again. Now that's a helpful, useful insight because you see this humble position for the Lord is one thing, but our natural, our natural fall in human nature is not to be humble. It is to be pride. We want to boast and say, look at me, look at what I've done. You see, if we just in life compare ourselves to other people, we can very easily end up proud of the fact that we are better than some other people out there. We'll always find people who were better than. When I've talked to people about the gospel and about their need of salvation, I have had many people say to me, but I'm a good person. And they'll sometimes say things like, I've never hurt anybody, I've never stolen anything, I've never killed anybody. It's interesting to me, they pick the commandments that they haven't broken, right? But ask yourselves, have you ever told a lie? Well, maybe once or twice, now and again, Maybe in the past? Or how about, have you ever been jealous of anyone? Have you ever coveted something? Have you ever desired something that was not your own? Now that's a tough one, because these commandments, they don't just ask what we've done or not done. They ask us about how we feel. They actually, by nature, address our human nature, and they convict us. So we can't just pick commandments that we happen to have obeyed and hold them up as examples of why we have something to be proud of. You see the point is that if we compare ourselves with other people we can always come out looking pretty good. I'm better than so and so or I'm better than I used to be. 
And if you compare yourself to other people, you can always find people who are a lot worse than you. There's plenty of those out there. But you see, when you compare yourself to Jesus, then humility comes rather swiftly to the surface. It must do in that scenario. So the Bible says, don't compare yourself against other people or other people's standards. Compare yourself against God and his perfect standard. Compare yourself against Jesus Christ, his only son, his life, his ministry, his death. Because the Bible says, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So God's son, Jesus, is the only standard. And if we really see ourselves as compared to him, then there is nothing to be proud about. But there is a whole lot to be humble about. Now in this story here, a lot has happened in Jacob's life. A lot has happened during his 20 years away from home in exile. And he's come back 20 years later, clearly a more humble man. Jacob here is acknowledging his faults and he has an entirely different perspective on the past and on his brother. And I would suggest he's also got an entirely different perspective on himself as that evening spent wrestling with God has brought him to a position of humility before the Lord. So much so that it touched him in a way that will be visible for the rest of his life. The Lord is almighty, he says in this chapter. The Lord is my master, he says. I am his servant. And because of that, he also declares, he, it's the motivation, I believe, that he's prepared to submit himself in humility, not only before God, but before his brother in this situation also. I can't think of a better piece of advice to give you if you're looking to re reconcile with someone else than to do what Jacob does and to approach that situation and that other person with a complete attitude of humility. One that recognises your position as someone who has been forgiven by the Lord, but also recognising that other person was made in the image of God and is worthy of your compassion. Remembering that Christ died for them as well will always be helpful when approaching someone and seeking reconciliation. Okay, I have a fourth and final suggestion. Let me remind you, the first observation is that you don't necessarily have to rehearse or rehash all the details of the past. The second is that someone's got to initiate, someone's got to move first, and that should, in most circumstances, be you. And the, the third thing is that when you do move forward, when you do step forward to seek reconciliation, you should do it with humility. But there's something that's very easy to miss in this passage on reconciliation, but it's important, and that's why I want to end with it. And that is the fact that Jacob prayed. Pray in all things, particularly in issues of reconciliation and our relationships with the people. Prayer is absolutely vital. The previous passage talked about the fact that Jacob wrestled with the Lord all night about this issue before he actually stepped out and dealt with it. As we've done this journey together through the book of Genesis, we've looked at these chapters on the life of Jacob separately over the last few weeks. But if you look at his entire story as a, a unit, you can't help but walk away from it with the impression that he really prayed about this thing before they finally came together. Someone has said, as the narrative unfolds, 
you, it's not Jacob's plan that has seemed to succeed, but his prayer is the thing that brings success. When he met Esau, he found that Esau arrived with a totally changed heart, didn't he? In fact, he ran out to meet Jacob and Esau embraced him and kissed him and they actually wept together. You see, all of Jacob's plans, all of his schemes, all of his machinations, in the end came to nothing. What actually brought reconciliation was the Lord answering his prayer and the Lord changing even the most stubborn heart, a heart that was of stone and turned against him, was now inclined to peace. The Lord had made a person who was in a hostile position inclined to want to seek peace and friendship together. So the overall narrative of this complete story across four chapters portrays the reconciliation of these brothers as in fact an answer to Jacob's prayer. In spite of all that Jacob has done wrong in the past, God still answers the prayer and uses Jacob's prayer as a way to prepare the path of reconciliation in the hearts of the other people. God is the God of reconciliation. The Bible clearly says that throughout. It's appearing here in its earliest stages, but this motif will appear again and again and again as we work through the Bible and reaches its high points in the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 5, in fact, tells us that he, God, his purpose was to reconcile us with him. But he also wants us to be reconciled with each other, particularly if we're Christian believers. So we are to seek to be reconciled, to always seek to be reconciled with anybody we're in conflict with. And to do that, we're told here first to look to the Lord and begin that process by praying about it and let the Lord prepare the path and work it out. Because in the final analysis, friends, reconciliation is always a work of grace. Reconciliation should be sought in prayer, but will be rewarded by faith and then should be acknowledged by praise. The restraining intervention of God kept Esau from seeking retaliation against Jacob. It softened his hard heart toward him. And this was not the first time in the story of Jacob that this has happened. Remember a chapter back, Laban at one point was out in pursuit and he was probably going to kill Jacob. And God intervened in that situation and appeared to Laban in a vision. Throughout this whole 20-year exile, it appears to me that God has been working in the hearts of both Jacob and Esau because they have both clearly undergone a spiritual transformation. No longer are either of these brothers being controlled by their sinful passions, their sinful drives and desires, which was a particular problem for Esau early on in the story, if you remember. All of this work of changing character has been done by the Lord. You see, I believe that one of the promises of God, an important promise we see revealed by the story, is that those of us who have received God's grace can trust in God's promise of protection when we seek reconciliation with someone else, no matter how well disposed they are to us. I believe that that is the fruit of the Spirit that we can take on board if we, un if we really embrace this, the, the message of this chapter. We 
who have received God's grace can always trust in his promise of protection in all things, but particularly when we seek reconciliation with someone else, no matter how ill disposed they are, no matter how badly we have treated them or they have treated us in the past. So this tells me, no more than that, this passage compels me to go and find anyone who we've been in conflict with and seek to be reconciled with them. And I believe it compels you to do the same thing, friends. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, like I said at the start, I'd like to remind you that within the episode notes, there's loads of links to ways that you can connect to me and my ministry and the resources I offer there. There's also a link to my Patreon website where I do make some exclusive content available to the people who have decided to become patrons of my ministry. I put on there things like uh, teaching and uh, the odd messages I've done in secular environments and maybe even preaching in churches locally. Now another thing that you can help with this ministry and this mission is that if you are appreciating and valuing the work of the Bible Project Daily Podcast then, well, first of all, subscribe it to ensure you get it every day. But also, if you review it or like it or share it, that just enables it to be seen by more people, which is a really good thing, I believe. But anyway, that's it for now. Thank you again so much for joining me. I hope you're enjoying having the Bible in your life every day. I really appreciate and covet your prayerful support of this ministry. I really can't do this without you and I hope to see you back here tomorrow or very very soon indeed on the Bible Project daily podcast bye friends